Hello again. So we've been broadcasting our COVID law briefing since the beginning of April, and I think we're somewhere in the vicinity of 30 episodes. We all want to thank our incredible guest experts and guest hosts who made these briefings possible. Equally, we thank you for watching or listening. Well, we've had enough fun working together that we're undertaking some new joint projects, one of which the elected leader of our commune will address later. Because of that and our individual commitment, we think it would be quite a good idea to take a brief break. However, we couldn't end this first chapter uh, without some reflections from the group as a whole. Uh, welcome, therefore, to COVID Law Briefings, the Director's Cut. So to sort of round one, given the episodes we've recorded, the discussions we've listened to, and our own observations, now we have several healthcare emergencies colliding. What are your sort of big picture thoughts as we go into our summer break? So Scott, our elected leader, let us go to you first. Well, you know, disparate impact just does not seem like a strong enough word for what's characterized the response to this epidemic. In so many ways, this epidemic has preyed upon underlying inequalities and built-in structural problems of racism and I guess I could have to say anti-immigrationism if that's at all separate from racism and really disdain for poor peopleism and neglect of working peopleism, all the ways in which we as a society have failed to exhibit solidarity and love each other have risen up and bitten us in such a you know an awful way. Of course, and in the worst, the worst of it is that the people who actually get the wounds most directly are those people who've already been you know pushed down. So we you know, do have bad health access, if you live in, in crowded facilities, if you have to do a essential job means you're taking the bus, driving the bus, all the people who for one reason or another are on the on the lower side of our ladder suffered much more. And our responses have almost looked like they were designed, who knows, maybe they were, to protect the better off at the expense of the less well. You know, there are some exceptions that we haven't protected our healthcare workers very well, and often they are of a more favored socioeconomic status. But um, we are at this time when, when we realize I hope, as a nation, how bad it has got in terms of inequality. And maybe that's hopeful. But now we're talking about, um, you know, where our money should go. And when I hear talk of defunding police. You know, I, I definitely get it. And there are parts of me that really resonate to that. But right now, when, you know, our, one of our biggest problems with this epidemic was the defunding of public health. I think the second thing we've learned from this epidemic is that the focus has to be having government that works, that government that has the proper resources, the proper capacity, the proper people, and the proper budgets. There is no way to live as a complex modern society without an effective government. And so while I, I, I definitely appreciate the idea that we have to redo how we deliver some key service, I also think we have to deal with the fact that over the last 30 or 40 years, we have systematically directed resources to rich people in the private sector and away from all the different things that government needs to do to help us be safe and to help create opportunity and the capacity for health in our population. Lon? Well, I, I agree with everything that Scott just said. And uh, I, I want to focus on another big picture trend that we've seen in the last couple of months, which is just the issues that have come up with distrust and politicization of science. Obviously, science denialism and skepticism is something that has a long history in this country and around the world. I mean, we, we, we saw it in the 80s and 90s with HIV denialism. We saw, we've seen it over the past 20 years with the resurgence of a lot of the anti-vaccination positions that, that deny the, the effectiveness of effective vaccines. Uh, we've also seen it with climate denialism. And so 
lack of trust in science and in public health uh, makes successful interventions much harder. And this is especially true when we're talking about a new infectious disease like COVID-19, where we have to be able to not only trust what the scientists are saying, but also understand the fact that sci- the science is evolving and the, the, the guidance that we get may change over time. And that doesn't mean we should stop trusting those scientists. And you know, this, this, of course, is exacerbated even more by some of the messaging and positioning coming out uh, of the Trump administration. I mean, the, you know, and, and this undermines science in a couple of different ways. You know, the first is just the, the actions and statements of the president often uh, are in opposition to scientific guidance, whether it's not wearing a mask or whether it's, uh, you know, criticizing agencies like the CDC or, or censoring agencies like the CDC who are trying to put out guidance to help people know what to do to protect themselves. It's also the, the kind of ongoing political struggle that is injected into every single um, piece of decision making or scientific communication. And so, you know, it, I, and I think I'm kind of channeling Hannah Arendt here, but if, if belief in science or belief in facts becomes something that is, uh, that is a, a political litmus test or a partisan divide, then any semblance of a successful response is going to be really challenging. And so, and we see this also when it comes to the blame game, you know, trying to excuse our lack of rapid response by uh, actions by China or the WHO. I think the, the move to withdraw from the WHO by the United States is incredibly damaging. It's, in da- it's damaging for public health in this country and around the world. It's damaging not only for the, the, the short term for, for the COVID-19 response, but it's, it's so damaging for the future future of all sorts of global public health initiatives. And my last point, I guess, and this connects to going into the future and thinking about the kind of trust that we need to build coming from our leaders and coming from our, our, our public health experts and scientists in order to not only deal with this threat right now, but also future threats, including climate change. The, the kinds of structural changes we have to make to, to succeed in responding to this pandemic are the same kinds of structural changes we're going to need to respond to the threat of climate change. And so everything we can do to build that trust and build those systems now is going to to be important for the, for the longer term as well. And to Wendy, what do you see from up in the sky? Well, thank you so much. And first of all, I can't agree more with what Scott and Lance said um, so well and so importantly. I guess maybe before we go on summer break here, this is a time for a little confession or mea culpa. When the pandemic first struck the United States significantly in, in March, I think besides fear for safety for my loved ones and everyone really, and you know, fear about the disease, I had a hope and a concern. And the concern as a policy and law matter was that our government would engage in overreaction as it has done with many health problems in the past, right? That we would, that the pandemic would connect with the pre-existing xenophobia and racism and lead to sort of an increase in those, maybe lead to some authoritarianism. And some of that has happened. The hope I had, I suppose, if one could, you know, look for silver linings and horrible, horrible dark skies, was that the pandemic would lead people to see we need to change this, right? We need to recognize and value public health. We need to understand that our healthcare system is dysfunctional when it comes to infectious outbreaks, that its incentives are all wrong. We need to start believing in science again. 
again and sort of wake up from our, you know, fun post-truth fantasies because this is real and reality was fine. Well, you know, now with the hindsight of a couple of months, it seems like, although certainly there has been some rumblings of authoritarianism and we don't know where that will play out in the United States, and although the administration has used the pandemic sort of textually to further some of their pre-existing anti-immigrant measures, um, we haven't seen sort of the real panic, right, that we even saw with Ebola. We haven't, that hasn't been the main core. Rather, the main core, surprise, surprise, um, has been, uh, what's the big deal? Or maybe like, okay, public health, that's nice, but why did you, why did you shut us down? And was there actually an overreaction even in doing that? And I think a concern is that maybe we have fallen into, you know, the eternal trap of public health. When public health works, we don't appreciate, right? In fact, we now have studies that are showing, suggesting at least that the shutdowns and various social distancing measures made a big difference. And yet you read and you hear people saying, and not just the president, but we don't need them. Why did we have them? So much of America, there was no disease, right? Nobody seems to say, hmm, oh, maybe there was no disease precisely because we acted early in some states. They didn't wait till things got as bad as they were in other states, like my own. So I'm not sure we're going to come out of this with the support for public health that we might have hoped. I'm not sure that we're going to come out of this with the kind of really significant reform of healthcare that we might have hoped for, or the recognition that we need, as Scott said, greater social solidarity to protect our health. Instead, it seems, at least at this moment in early June, that there's a great hunger to just go back to status quo ante and sort of try to put a few bad weeks out of mind. Well said. So, uh, My colleagues here, of course, are the brightly shining stars of public health, but COVID has also been a clinical care tragedy. The pandemic has illustrated the fundamental fragility of a healthcare system that, some financing and regulation aside, is fundamentally one implemented by private actors interacting in a poorly functioning market model. Private healthcare entities, be they non-profits or for-profits, lack incentives to address the social determinants of health, to build community resilient, to construct wraparound services, to support rural health care, or to invest in the healthcare solidarity that we need to achieve herd-based improvement. Right in the Atlantic uh, today, Ed Young noted, quote, last year when the Global Health Security Index graded every country on its pandemic preparedness, the United States had the highest overall score, 83.5, but on access to healthcare specifically, it scored just 25.3. Out of 195 countries, it tied with Gambia for 175th place. COVID-19 not only illustrates how private actors failed to invest in prophylactic structures, but also their relatively poor performance once the pandemic arrived. Stories have emerged of chaotic responses by for-profit private healthcare systems that had been reducing supplies and overworking their staff before the virus even hit. Reliance on diffuse private entities who are also 
competitors is also responsible for much of the fragmentation in our healthcare system. As the situation in New York worsened in March 2020, Governor Cuomo announced a statewide public-private hospital plan to fight COVID-19. This essentially merged the state's 200 entities. It meant they could share supplies and staff. They could balance capacity like a real healthcare system should. Suddenly, New York had a functioning healthcare system. So I think for me, midway through this, if there's one overarching lesson to be learned from COVID-19, it's that the country's investments in clinical care versus public care obviously must be recalibrated. But the inevitable barrier to that reform, along with all the other barriers my colleague here raised, will be private healthcare lobbyists who will argue for increased reimbursement for providers rather than channeling resources to social determinants, breaking down racial barriers, surveillance, preventive care, and so on. So from 10,000 feet, let's look down at some of the topics that uh, sort of piqued our interest, um, have got us writing and talking more. What are some of the things that you've been following, particularly during this in law and policy um, or predictions you'd like to make? Back to you, Scott. Well, listening to you guys and thinking about this this week, I, I have increasingly come to the view that surviving COVID and learning from it is ultimately on us, on all of us. And I mean that in a couple of senses. In one sense, I mean it that I, I think we cannot expect that government is going to perform as it should be performing. It may do better in some places. It's certainly doing worse in others. I think our actual hope is that if enough of us are tried to be responsible with our own behavior to maintain social distance, to use the masks, to limit our networks, um, and if we bring that responsibility into our workplaces and wherever we can influence it in our communities so that we're all supporting each other and trying to be careful, it seems looking around the experience of the world that that might be enough to get us below the, you know, the R1, that, that you don't have to be perfect if you have enough social buy-in to the process. That's my hope. I don't, I can't say it's a prediction, but I, I don't know if I have more to cling to. I also think this is now on us in the um, George Floyd sense, in the defund the police sense, um, and in, in the ways that you've all alluded to, which is that this is now a huge political institutional change problem, challenge. We, I, I have warned defund the police, not because I don't think we need anybody fighting crime um, under any circumstances anywhere, but because I think it captures the idea that we need fundamental change. We need to develop institutions that actually serve us, that serve everybody, that are open to everybody, that don't see race or color or class, um, and that give high quality services to every person in this country, whether they're a citizen or a visitor, an immigrant, legal or illegal. I mean, we all are in this together. But that kind of political change, which I, I, I warm to see is being articulated now all over the time, that kind of political change is going to require dogged persistence and also, I think, a refusal to compromise, a refusal to back away, a refusal to accept that we can just continue to be a country with a crummy health system, with a crummy public health system, with a crummy police system, with crummy educational system, with crumbling infrastructure. The people who have told us that's the best we can do for too long have got to go. But again, that ain't going to happen from them. It is on us. So I say, let's do it, folks. That's a great rousing call to action, which I agree with completely, Scott. I, I, I was going to highlight one or two other issues as well. One is, one thing I've been keeping my eye on really closely, in part because I, I've been working on some projects related to it, is the issue of uh, resource scarcity, allocation decisions, crisis standards of care. So um, we came really close in a, in a number of places to having to, including in New York City, having to uh, explicitly ration care because the, the, pace, the patient surge of uh, people suffering serious symptoms from COVID-19 was so high. And there were so many people who needed ventilators, who, who needed other you know, critical care resources. 
And then there was also, the, of course, the shortages in PPE and other other necessary supplies uh, that healthcare workers and other people, other essential workers, really needed to keep themselves safe. And so this is an issue where you know we it, it definitely had an effect in the first stage of this outbreak. But you know we, I think we we avoided the worst potential scenarios there. But we haven't solved the problem. You know even though you know the the manufacturing of some of these scarce supplies has increased, we still don't really have coordinated plans for trying to avoid overuse and, and over capacity situations going forward in the future. And so as we move into this this time where we're likely to see subsequent waves of, of and spikes in infection rates and, and more people needing, especially um, the, the, the critical care kind of hospital resources, uh, we really need to kind of renew our commitment to uh, making sure that we have not only, not only plans in place to make tough decisions, we want to avoid those tough decisions by having the capacity to handle anyone who needs help. And we also want to be supporting people to be able to make the kinds of decisions that will that will flatten that curve and keep it flat for as long as we can until we ha- have you know truly identified and manufactured uh, vaccines or other treatments that are effective against this disease. Because that that's that's a longer term prospect that, that that we need to get to uh, without without too much more harm happening. And so you know the, another related issue I think that that's really important here is um, as we move into those subsequent waves of outbreak. And we're, we're already seeing states with, with increases again, and we're likely to see even more come the fall. You know, how do how do our, our leaders at the state and federal level, or even at the local level, how do they respond in terms of uses of public health powers? Uh, you know, we, we, we've seen the widespread use of stay-at-home orders. You know, that was necessary in the early stages to stop the rapid spread. Um, and what we should have been doing all along is creating an infrastructure so that we wouldn't have to go back to those widespread stay-at-home orders when this disease re- Reoccurs, and you know we we haven't put in place the kind of robust and extensive test treat and test treat and isolate programs that would allow us to target those restrictions more uh, specifically. And so when we get down to needing to stay apart on mass again in, in, in really significant ways, how are we going to do that? Uh, are we going to try to use those legal powers again? Uh, can we expect people to comply with those requests um, to ha- to continue to show that 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 solidarity that we showed during the first couple of months? I mean, I we've t- we've heard a lot about solidarity in our discussions today. And I, I think one thing that's actually sort of amazing to me is the amount of solidarity that we've seen from so many people who for the past three months have complied with these significant restrictions in order to save the lives and, the, and protect the health of other people, like great personal sacrifice to themselves. I think that's really amazing. And it's something that, you know, we, you know it's, we, we should have used that time to, to build our infrastructure and to, to sustain it. And, and I guess I'll, I'll leave with this, you know, you know, can we expect people to continue to make those sacrifices if we need to do it again? Can we justify the fact that we haven't made it easier on people? And to the extent that we need to continue to support people to allow them to comply, whether that's with income support or whether that, you know, uh, healthcare access or, you know, moratoria on evictions or on utility shutoffs and all of those kinds of programs, which are now starting to lapse, uh, that's going to be something that we we need our our elected leaders to support. It's going to be harder for the states to do it on their own because states are going to run into their balanced budget amendments. And so we really need federal leadership on that as well. And so this is something that, you know, we're going to have to continue to put pressure on people who have the the power to make those decisions to to come through on those areas. And Wendy. Thank you so much. I want to talk briefly about two different issues that are somewhat different, but I've been working on. One is immigration. I mentioned it earlier. At the start of the pandemic, many warned that the highly restrictive immigration policies um, are going to make the, would make the pandemic worse. 
detention camps like prisons could become tinderboxes of disease. Immigrant communities were terrified of authorities with good reason and lack access to healthcare because they're denied access to Medicaid and other public programs would bear a disproportionate toll and would refuse to engage in contact tracing or avoid going to healthcare. Well, what has actually happened? Anecdotal reports, and there are many, suggest that our worst fears were true, came true. Chelsea, Massachusetts, for example, a small city outside of Boston with a very high immigrant population, has had extraordinarily high rates of infection, the highest of the state. There are also many reports of outbreaks in detention camps as in prisons. But although we have good reason to believe this situation has been dire, I think we actually need more research to untangle the interrelated strands of causation. We also need to keep our eye on what's going to come from all of the many passport-specific border closings that have been instituted, not just in this country, but around the world. A virus that should show us our independence and our the fact that our fate um, depends upon the fates of others has led to increases in nationalism and the response of sort of pulling up the drawbridge all around the world. What does that mean for the future? Um, once there are vac- is a vaccine or vaccines that are available, will nations share it? Will immigration-based restrictions on travel continue? Will borders that are now closed reopen? Or has COVID been used to augment and further a pre-existing nationalistic agenda that was connected with populists? I think we don't know the answers to those questions. I just add here, it's not specifically immigration, but it's certainly goes to nationalism, right? The president's threat to withdraw the U.S. from the WHO. So really what comes of global health and migration and our recognition of global solidarity, I think we don't know the answer to those questions. Secondly, and quite differently, I just want to briefly talk about the future of constitutional public health law, because I've been working on that for several other projects. And in the last 10 weeks, there have been, as I looked this morning, 82 published court decisions about constitutional challenges to state social distancing orders. That's a lot of cases in two months while courts are, you know, somewhat closed. Um, Most courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States in its order um, in South Bay United Pentecostal Church, have denied preliminary relief to litigants who have sought to enjoin state social distancing laws. But not all courts. Um, And the Supreme Court um, order that was over a vociferous dissent by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Justices Gorsuch and Thomas. And I want to suggest that the law, because that was the court's order, was only a preliminary decision on interlocutor to deny interlocutory relief, and was in some sense fact specific. The law may remain unsettled, and what we're seeing is, you know, a revisiting of old public health law verities, including what does Jacobson versus Massachusetts mean, in a way that we have never seen before. Right? I mean, over eighty cases discussing Jacobson. 
in two months. Quite extraordinary. Um, and the question I want to throw out there, uh, having spent way too much time reading all of these cases, is what will this mean for public health law after the pandemic? Will public health powers and the relationship between state police powers and constitutional law that have never been fully settled, but we kind of thought we knew the ground upon which we stand, will, that, will we remain on that ground? Or will things change? Particularly wondering about what this will mean for vaccination mandates, school-based vaccination mandates at the end of this. We're seeing some developments and some court decisions about free exercise rights, about what Jacobson means, suggesting that maybe Jacobson was really only about emergencies, right? That I think are going to create some red flags for settled law about vaccinations. Not sure that they will. And also some other areas of public health law. So when we get to the other side of this emergency, I'm not sure what it is, what will public health law look like after all of this turmoil and proliferation of doctrine, new doctrine potentially? Will we just go back to where we were? That is certainly possible. And again, I do want to emphasize that most courts have issued decisions that I would say were not surprising, given where we thought the law was. But there are some decisions that are somewhat surprising, and we don't know where this will play out. So I think it's worth keeping our eyes on, will our ideas and our sense that courts give deference to public health, that public health matters in constitutional law, how is that going to look at the other end of this? Something to keep our eyes on. The first sort of closing point, I guess, for me, is um, as we planned our shows and 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 invited our speakers and guest hosts, you know, we asked them to address COVID nineteen and fill in the blank. But I think that even in just the few months since we started doing this work, we can no longer just talk about COVID nineteen. It things have changed so dramatically that we have to start sort of disaggregating that along a timeline. And I use as my example for that liability shield that I've been working on. Um, you know, at at the beginning, we were talking about liability shields for first responders, for folks who had been drafted in, for, who may not have had a state license, who may probably didn't have malpractice insurance in, if, if, when they went to New York. And so we had sort of these shields that were being uh, passed by the state. And that involved one sort of sense of recalibrating uh, the rights of patients and the rights of providers. But then you move into another phase uh, as sort of nursing homes picking up a little bit from what Wendy was saying in, about immigration, um, who are making sure that you know, no good emergency goes unused and hoping to persuade legislatures to provide sort of broader immunities for them, even though in many cases they contributed uh, quite uh, uh, broadly to the problem. And then you have still another developing area, which is how do we handle reopening and unlocking? And do we have a different calibration with regard to liability and liability shields? So I think even in this dramatically short time frame, we, we already have to start picking that apart. Next, the idea that you've spoken about, Scott, in particular, about whether things will change. Uh, a recent Yale Review essay by John Witt, quote, the history of public health emergencies in the United States shows that crises do not create a state of exception, do not, nor do they beget radically new beginnings with all their possibilities and perils. And I think that idea of build better in the future has to be something that we have to inject into uh, the dialogue increasingly. And I think 
that idea worries me even more and I ref- as I reflect on our serial public health emergencies that we're dealing with. These serial emergencies, I think, tend to obscure our memories and, and force policymakers into sort of a, a Trumpian style of reaction, which is, I will only deal with today's problem and then battle. Um, I mean, we started with an opioid use emergency, public health emergency, which is still going on, a real public health nightmare. Then along comes COVID, but now also comes the recognition that we have a public health emergency involving systemic institutionalized racism. How do we keep focus on change? And I, I suppose more the better question and the one that uh, will lead into Scott's next piece uh, on, on what we're doing next is how do we keep our policymakers focused on what we should be doing? So Scott, over to you. Thanks, Nick. And and I think you know there's been two strains in, in our work all along and in this discussion. You know, on one hand, we're trying to see the big picture and understand, you know, where uh, we have large scale institutional failure, institutional problems, structural inequalities and so on. But the other half has been good lawyer, um, good policy work, that the fact, the understanding that complex systems need to be structured and guided and supported by sophisticated, you know, infrastructure, including legal infrastructure. Um, and that's the, I think, the, uh, the, 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 the that and the idea that we do need to build from this is the rationale for what we're calling at the moment, the COVID-19 Rapid Legal Response Project. Um, we have gathered a group of, 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 of over 30 really fine lawyers who are each taking a, a, a separate topic within the within the response, include, ranging from basic stuff like uh, police power and where that stands and stay-at-home orders and so on and surveillance to more specialized areas like um, liability shields that Nick is working on or rationing that Lance is working on. Uh, I myself am trying to do something about the Defense Production Act and understand where we, you know, where we are with trying to be more more cooperatively federalist in our procurement policies. Wendy's going to be writing a chapter on immigration, um, to which we all look forward um, with dread and eagerness to the, the bad news she will undoubtedly bring. But the, the the point of each of these is that they're not law review articles. They're going to be short pieces. We're talking about about three thousand words, and each one is going to come with, um, we hope, apt specific and actionable recommendations for what has to happen in policy going forward, both in the immediate short term and in the long run. We're going to publish this twice, given the urgency. Once in early August, when our first set of recommendations, particularly geared to what do we have to do right now for the next wave that is, that's, I wouldn't say is coming, but I think we're actually in the midst of already. And then the second, uh, at the end of the year, um, when we will be trying to offer fodder for those who want to make big changes um, and will try and provide legal inspiration, legal ideas, legal thoughts about how you take big changes and turn them into uh, small letters on crowded pages uh, of laws and regulations. Uh, we'll be looking forward to your response um, as as readers um, and as experts, um, and particularly um, when it comes out in August, there'll be a nice period when feedback will help us prepare the final version. So just keep that in mind and watch out for this report and um, get in touch with us if you have any questions or thoughts. Well, thank you again. Uh, to my colleagues, uh, our guests, and to all of you listening. You will find our episodes at publichealthlawwatch.org and the audio archives are at the Week in Health Law podcast at twill.com. Uh, the COVID law, COVID-19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kallick and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you later in the summer. Until then, uh, please stay safe. Pay attention to your mental health and that of your family and friends. Wear a mask and keep washing those hands. Till next time. Thank you.